You are listening to a London Review of Books podcast. Good morning. I think I'm allowed to speak now. Is this right? I always think of uh, an episode in White Noise where the the narrator uh, sees his daughter sleeping and she's obviously dreaming. She's mouthing something. He thinks, the dreams of a five-year-old, what are they? And he wanders over and she's... Toyota Celica. Toyota Celica. <laughs> so after this session with you know, one of the, the world's uh, premier literary critics, uh, uh, Jacqueline Rose, um, you'll probably go home mouthing beer deluxe. Beer deluxe. <laughs> I hope that's not the case. I hope you, I hope you have the question of Zion um, uh, firmly implanted in your, in, in your unconsciousnesses. Um, my name's Justin Clemens. I'm, I'm uh, uh, the, I guess, the host for this morning. I think the, the reason I'm here is because I'm one of the co-editors of um, uh, this excellent book with a, a very pallid cover, um, the Jacqueline, Jacqueline Rose Reader, uh, of which I was... Uh, um, it was a, an incredible experience to be able to, to read all of Jacqueline's uh, published work to, to that moment and, and then try and... Um, you know, hack it apart, which is, um, I guess, the, the job of an editor, and, and pretend that this curatorship, um, you know, is a is a is a um, a boon rather than a rather than a an attack on something greater than yourself. So, can you please welcome uh, someone? Someone. And, and um, Jacqueline, is, as they say, they normally say uh, this room isn't big enough for the both of us, but this room isn't big enough for the single one of you. Um, you uh, I believe that it sold out immediately and there, there should, have been, yeah, should have been more seats. And um, This is, is one of the things, I guess, that, that I, I read when I read your work is there should always be more seats. There's, there's always exclusions, opacities, and so on, going on even in the, the most apparently generous of, um, of, uh, of, of openings, that are, whether, whether textual or, or, or pragmatic. And I was wondering if you, you, you'd start to, to speak about these, these problems, which are problems of repression, essentially, and, and maybe with respect to, to families as, as well. Well, we've got opacity and repression in the first sentence, so I've got to find a way of responding to that. But before I do, I just want to thank you for being here and to thank Justin uh, publicly for the extraordinary work um, that he did on this book, which leaves him in the position of knowing me better than I know myself. But if you're a Freudian, that's normal. You don't know yourself, so it's sort of fine. Um, Opacity. I'm not quite sure how to respond to opacity, but um, I think what Justin's picking out is that psychoanalysis has been, for me, my sort of companion through the years, through the decades, as a sort of way of thinking. In fact, what I say to my students is that without Freud, I don't think I'd be able to think in the same way. He's been sort of a figure who's allowed me to contemplate the idea that whenever anything is going on publicly or officially or in terms of the performance of who we are, there will be a backstory. There will be another story um, that is both being heard but also has to be silenced in order for the person to go on believing in themselves in the way that they do. Um, and oddly enough, that sort of that basic idea, I think it probably links just about everything I've written mm. about, but the two examples that come to mind are, of course, the Middle East conflict. Um, my difficulty as a, a, a Jewish woman in trying to deal with uh, a nation, Israel, which calls on me to participate in its own public discourse and its own Mm -hmm. existence and expects that of me, 
not just in the simple sense that Israel claims to speak for all Jews in the world, but in a much, much more profound symbolic sense of belonging. And so I felt a very undutiful daughter, um, and that's a polite way of putting it in relationship to what other people think about me. I felt a very undutiful daughter in not responding to that call. Um, but what it led me to feel that I needed to do was to understand why that call is so powerful and to understand mm. what it is that it might be carrying and concealing at the same time. Mm. Because I hope whatever the political affiliations of the people, of people in this room are, it would be nice if we could see you a bit more, actually, but uh, maybe the lights will come in a bit later. Uh, this is, after all, meant to be a conversation. Thank you. Thank you. It's a conversation, right? Um, um, whatever the political affiliations of you in this room, I hope you would probably recognize that there is something intractable about this conflict. There's something about it that has a kind of a resilience and a kind of an investment, almost a libidinal emotional investment in, in Israel's version of itself as the victims of history. And that is a form of licensing of what I would certainly describe as for occupation, everybody describes occupation, but a certain notion about what is justifiable given that history. It's a, it's a very, very heady mix. And so I wanted to understand what behind the sort of militarization of the country and it's what, what to many people look like it's and are often its brutal policies towards the Palestinian. What's the subtext? What is the vision behind that? What is it that's driving it? So that has mm. been absolutely central, but it also relates, this is a bit of a long answer, I prom promise you the rest won't be as long as this, <laughs> but uh, it also relates to something as different as, say, Marilyn Monroe, about mm. whom I was talking mm. yesterday. And in her case, it's the perfection of the image. And whenever... If you think psychoanalytically, if someone is being offered to the world as so perfect, you smell trouble. You know that it's carrying the can for something. You know there's something being concealed. And the more I delved into her, not only did I find this incredibly sentient, political, alive, critical woman, um, but that what she was alert to was what she was being used for. Um, by the end of her life, she was being tracked by the the FBI. She was on their list from 1955, the last eight years of her life because of her left leanings. But she hated Hollywood. She absolutely hated it. And she saw what it was manipulating. And she says in one amazing interview with Bill Weatherby, the wonderful journalist, she says, the politicians get away with murder because most people know as little about politics as I do. So she's really making a relationship between political state violence and the willed ignorance of people. Mm. So it's all linked for me in ways that I, you know, I'm, it's, I make it sound more coherent, or maybe not at all coherent, but I make it sound more linked than it is. But it's always looking for something else than mm. what we're being encouraged to see. I mm. guess that would be... Yeah, and, and, and it seems to, to me that in your writing, at least, it always begins with a, an, an encounter, or at least a, your accounts of an encounter. So at the beginning of your book states a fantasy. You say you're, you're visiting a sister who's living with Bedouins in, in Israel at that time, and that started to... That triggered this, this train of thought, which is what sort of a land is making such a claim upon me and insists on making this claim such that if I try and uh, demure from this claim, um, I'm in trouble. I'm, I'm, I, I must be with them or I'm against them, even if I'm always already with them, or I, then if I'm not always 
already with them, then I must be excluded. And this is, this is how you begin, with a, with a yeah. familial encounter with a sister overseas. This was an incredible story. I have a sister who's a real rebel, and um, our father decided that the way to sort her out was to send her to Israel. And I remember sitting in a pub in St. John's Wood and him saying, you know, the right of return, he said, it's amazing. It means she can go and live in Israel, I can send her a fridge with no tax. <laughs> and I thought, hmm, that's great, you know. Okay, so, so messianism of, of tax, tax <laughs> yeah, dodging. Zionism of tax dodging. Yeah. Okay, so I listened to all of this and off went my sister to live in Israel and um, she did everything, it was wonderful. She was meant to go straight to Nolpan and learn Hebrew, instead of which she hung out with the Bedouins in occupied Sinai. And... Um, and she sort of wandered around the desert in a long velvet cloak, and she taught herself Arabic, and it was incredible. So I went to visit her. In fact, I was being asked to go and check her out, right, because there was a suspicion that things weren't going quite according to plan. So I got there, and she took me out to the village in the Negev where she was staying, and on one side of the track was a holiday village for Israelis with soldiers in full gear, military gear and chains, and she said, that's the Israeli holiday village. She said, I'm pointing to a shack on the opposite side of the attraction. That's where we're staying. And it was the one Bedouin shack they'd left in place because the guy who owned it was a smuggler, and therefore he could give them information. So we slept in the tent. And then occasionally I would wander over the other side to the village and sit down in the cafe. And an Israeli soldier came up to me one day and said, what do you think of your sister? So I said, I think she's great. I think she's going, well, he, why? He said, she's a whore. And I realized that what he meant was that no, no Jewish girl would hang out with Bedouins unless she was a prostitute. And that was such an eye-opener. Mm -hmm. But that whole trip, I mean, I'll just get, tell you one other anecdote from that trip. <coughs> I found myself sitting on the plane next to Dima Habash. I don't know if you've heard of George Habash, the founder of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. And she was being educated in a private school in England. And she said to me, are you Jewish? And I said, yes. She said, you probably think the land belongs to you. And I found myself saying without thinking it, no, actually, I think it belongs to you. It certainly doesn't belong to me. I don't live there, right? She said, go to Ramallah. She said, please go to Ramallah. Her mother was working for UNRWA, which was the United Nations Reliefs and Works Association, and which took girls out of the camps trained them to be beauticians, dietitians, dentist assistants, and sent them to Jordan and Lebanon, sent them across the borders. Every six months, the government would shut down the camp. They'd all go back into their camps and never be seen again. So we decided to go and visit them. Her mother would not meet us because we were Jewish. But when we arrived at the UNRWA agency, about 10 girls came rushing out to greet us in blue ovals, ecstatic. We were foreigners. We were visitors. They were so pleased to see us. They were Palestinian girls, and we were thrilled. It was a lovely exchange, and then they all smiled, and all their teeth were on. And I realized, of course, there's no dentistry in the refugee camps. And it was a political education in a split second. Suddenly, you see it. You actually see what's going on. Um, and then just to finish this, this story, because it's so true that my relationship to Israel was determined by this trip um, on the way back. Oh, we, after a few days in the desert, guess what? We want to stay in a hotel and have a bathroom. So we stayed in, we stayed in a hotel in Netanya, 
and we're sitting in the lobby and it says Gideon Schiff Hotels and they're about the diplomat in Tel Aviv, there are about 20 hotels. Um, and on the plane, and this was so unlikely, I found myself, not Dean Habash this time, Gideon Schiff's son. And he starts talking to me and I said, are you related to Gideon? He's my father, we don't talk to each other. So I said, mm -hmm. I said, so what do you do? He said, I'm an arms dealer. He said, I send to, sell to anybody except for communists uh, and Arabs and terrorists. So I said to him, who does that leave? You know. <laughs> um, anyway, so this was going really well, you can imagine. And then he said to me, and this is the point of the story, he said, uh, so what do you think of Israel? So I said, well, actually, I found it extremely disturbing. I said, I went to Ramallah. Um, and I saw the refugee camps, and I saw the settlements, and this was in the 80s, the settlements being built. I said, I found it, he said, I feel very sorry for you. So I said, why do you feel sorry for me? He said, because you're like an Italian waiter who goes to live in New York and loses all touch with their home. I said, but it was not my home, excuse me, it's not my home. I said, I think this conversation's come to an end, don't you? End of conversation. But those little, it's incredible. I mean, you know, you had some little political educations Every moment, you, everywhere you turned, you were being politically educated if you could hear it. So yes, you're right. That mm. was a moment where, again, I was meant to be, to know who I was in Israel. Mm. I've never had such a deeply disorienting mm. experience as that was. And uh, it, it, it strikes me too that it's linked not just to these encounters, but, but uh, uh, details that can't be managed in these encounters, the, the rotting teeth of the, of the girls who greet you, for instance, or, the, or the, 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 it, what seems to me a kind of crazy analogy of the Italian waiter in, in New York. What, what's, that, what's that doing? So is this, are these the points at which in, in these details or these details at which something exposes itself or where management fails mm. um, that, that you want to, to, to start your, your, your critical analyses? That's what I'm interested I'm interested in the moment where something official that is meant to be persuasive shows the cracks along the seams. Mm. And if you think psychoanalytically, that will always, always be the case. I mean, in relationship to the Middle East... Um, a lot of people are very depressed about it because despite the ongoing peace talks, a number of us think nothing's going to happen. Mm. Um, but it is central sort of belief for psychoanalysis that the symptom is in the end too costly, uh, that the wall will break because the amount, the amount of emotional energy you have to f use up in keeping the symptoms and the defense in place in the end, it's too, it's too costly and it's too debilitating. It's sucking off too much from everywhere else. So some, something starts to give. So whereas on the one hand, psychoanalysis can be seen as, I wouldn't say, well, Freud was, of course, a terrible pessimist, but I wouldn't say it was a depressing discourse. I mean, it is about the suffering behind the veneer of reason. Uh, on the other hand, I think it's a deeply optimistic discourse because it says the symptom, you cannot, you're always deceiving yourself but you cannot deceive yourself interminably. Something's going to give in the system. Mm. So I get great solace, as it were, from that. Mm. Even, uh, even, even when in your, your analyses, for example, in the, the question of, of Zion, lead you back to, to 17th century messianic sex of... which are basically uh, failed sex of Shabtai Zvi, for instance, mm. who you see whose um, uh, uh, messianism still operative in, in kind of militarised Israel today. Can you, can you speak about that, uh, that tracing? This has caused a lot of uh, dispute, actually. It's, it's interesting. I mean, my argument um, is that even in so-called secular Zionism, there is still a messianic strain. 
and uh, Jeffrey Hartman, who um, founded this extraordinary, and he died, I think, only about a year ago, he founded this amazing, not Jeffrey Hartman, Hartman, I can't remember his first name, I'm confusing him with the sure. American the, the literary, literary critic. critic. Yeah, no, not yeah. Jeffrey Hartman. David. Thank you. David Hartman of the Shalom Hartman Institute in Israel. He wrote a book in which he said he, he wanted to save Judaism from its messianic streak. I mean, he firmly believed that the appropriation of Jewishness by messianism in Israel was cutting off the youth from a positive Jewish identity. It's a very, very interesting mm. argument. But he certainly saw it as having a messianic streak in it. And if you read, you know, if you read Ben-Gurion's writing or if you read Chaim Weizmann's writing, even when he's talking about the slow, incremental tilling of the land, you can find that way of thinking inside, uh, you know, inside Kabbalic, you know, Kabbalic Judaism about the idea that you will help the coming of the Messiah by an incremental transformation of the conditions under which you might arrive. So mm. it's not always an apocalyptic vision. Mm. Although, having said that, Gershom Sholem says you will not remove the apocalyptic sting from the language, even if you try to secularize, create a secular Hebrew. You will not be able to do it. And actually, since I wrote the book, people have written about this more and more, mm. that there's a kind of messianic sort of rationale and thinking about Zionism as divinely inspired, as somehow waiting for something that's always threatening to come and never will, which then produces, a, it, it chimes in with the permanent discourse of fear in Israeli mm. society. Um, so again, I mean, you can hear, what I'm interested in is, is that emotional tinge of what is being presented as a political mm. logic. Mm. Um, and I'll just say something else about that, which is uh, some of the critics of the book, The Question of Zion, just felt, you know, what I'd done was preposterous to use psychoanalysis mm. to talk about Zionism um, because it was felt that that is to remove from the Jewish people the rationale, as in the reason for the need for self-determination. Well, you know, what I always say is we need a concept here of over-determination, which is all that can be true. Of course it's true. You know, I say on page three of the book that the desire for national self-determination was a legitimate desire, mm. especially given what had happened. That's not a problem for me. But they can also be fueled by other forms of investment, and those are the ones that I think are most tricky. So when the book was translated into Hebrew, which I was uh, very, very moved and, and, and thrilled about, they asked me to write a preface, and so I just said, it is axiomatic for psychoanalysis that no one is ever demeaned by the unconscious. Mm. You know, I mean, it's... Freud's stated aim in interpreting dreams was to establish the divorde, which means in German, the worth, the dignity mm. of the psyche. I mean, that's the basic move. The things you're ashamed of, don't be ashamed of, because we're all in it together. So there's no grounds for shame. So in a sense, that's been, and it's, it's, it's got mm. worse, and I've gone on arguing it, which is to say that there is an effective emotional investment in a political rhetoric is not to degrade it, it's to try and understand it. But, you know, we're living in an era where psychoanalysis is more and more on the defensive. Mm. We're talking CBT. I don't know if that's a big thing here, cognitive behavioral <laughs> therapy. There was, what there else was, is there? What else is there? Yeah. Well, there was an incredible moment in England where, you know, the government said, we've, we, there's been too much drug-based therapy. You thought, yes. Too much drug we need talking therapies. You thought, yes. And then they come up with CBT. Well, you know, where you have, to, you have to, you are talked out of your symptom in six sessions. And that's the end of it. Mm. You know, the idea that there might be a complex set of 
psychological determinants, the idea that you might have to remember something is just not the issue. So there, it, we are living in a moment where, I mean, people like Darren Leader have written brilliantly mm. about this, the onslaught against psychoanalysis because it goes under the surface and nobody has time for that. Mm. You're a speedy, speedy culture. Nobody wants to stop and think in that way. And since you've raised the, the, the fundamental role of, of, of intense affects, unmanageable affects in, in, in politics, can I also uh, remind you of your, your work on apathy, uh, which seems to be, uh, at least to, at first blush, to uh, um, maybe antithetical to these, to these but uh, you, you say something else in your, your essay on the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It's true. See, this is the terrible thing about having an editor. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm re reproducing my own anxieties. Yeah, uh, these kind of things. Apathy. Oh dear, how does that fit in? Yeah. Yes, okay. This was we don't feel anything. I'm interested in apathy. <laughs> I don't feel anything for us. Uh, <laughs> uh. Well, this, I was just very struck in the TRC. I don't know. I mean, it's the most extraordinary historical document. And mm. I found myself teaching a course on South African literature. And so I, I read quite a lot of the. TRC, because it is a psychoanalytic public moment. I mean, it's a moment where, you know, you will speak the truth. Um, of course, you know, as Desmond Tutu said, there's a real problem is that half of these people are lying through their teeth. And secondly, they came to tell the truth only to get off. So, you know, the, it's, a, it's a very disturbing sort of celebration and disintegration of what speaking the truth might be. Nonetheless, it was a public, the only hearing, I think, Jeremy Harding, who's here, will tell me if I'm right about this. Up to that point, I think it was the only one ever to have been held its hearings in public, I think, the South African TRC. So it was an attempt at a kind of public catharsis, and there was just one moment in it, in the very brief section on women, where um, a woman wrote a letter saying, you know, I, I feel I am incriminated in apartheid because I was too apathetic to do anything about it. So it was really pushing as far as you can go the notion of the bystander. And, of course, it's very interesting that the TRC goes for the perpetrators. That's a great sound. <laughs> and that's my daughter, Jacqueline. So <laughs> no, 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 I yeah. realised it was. I just wanted to say thank you. I appreciate the intervention. <laughs> yeah, the, the intervention. Um, and so it, the TRC has been criticised for going for the perpetrators and not going for the system of apartheid and therefore not going for the bystanders. The universities get a section this long, for example. I mean, there's a big question here about who is guilty. Okay. So... Sorry. She'd had enough, Jack. She'd had enough, yeah. okay. It's not even the mouth of babes anymore. It's the, um, you know, the mobile phones of babes. Okay, just so long as her father yeah. can carry on. Hang <laughs> let's on go, let's just... A little, just... Bit, a little <laughs> bit longer. Um, so there, there was a very... Dis she said, you know, I was apathetic and therefore I, I am guilty. And I just thought that was such a moving statement. It does relate to what we're talking mm. about. Because the apathy is a political symptom. I say the sense that there is a world in which you have no role to play. I mean, there's a lot of discussion going on about this in England at the moment and about the depoliticization and the collapse of civic society. And in fact, I met somebody yesterday who's a historian here who said she just, she might not be here today at this event, she written a book on trust hmm. and critiquing the idea that we all distrust our politicians and therefore politics has come to an end. And her argument was, first of all, it's very good to distrust your politicians. And secondly, that's harping back to a golden age of participation, as if this was not a political moment. So it's a way of depoliticizing mm. the now. Mm. Okay, so I felt behind that apathy was actually a kind of machinery of state 
and of compliance and of identification with um, state objectives and apartheid that was being concealed under what looked like, I'm not sure I have a role to play. Who mm. am I in this? I have nothing to do. So it is part of the same thing, mm. I hope. That was mm. just my attempt to make them connect. Uh, I guess one of the things that really struck me about uh, the work of, of Jacques Lacan, uh, the, the French psychoanalyst, um, who, of course, you're one of the, the, the first uh, great translators of, of some of his works into, into English, and particularly the, the feminine sexuality volume that you did with uh, uh, Juliet Mitchell. But it always struck me, one of the things about Lacan that I, I, I loved immediately was his very ironic uh, remarks about psychoanalysis doesn't make you feel better, it just enables you to speak a little better. And um, it's on, on, uh, I'd, like to, I'd like to ask you about how do you think that your work enables people to speak a little better, if, a, if at all? Well, speak a little better is interesting because um, Lacan ended up being very critical of the notion of full speech, which was mm. uh, very early on in his life, he said, the patient starts by either speaking to me or speaking about herself. When she can speak to me about herself, then it's over. Right? It's, she's cured. Mm. So there was some notion of achieving a certain dimension of speech which would complete the therapeutic process and complete yourself. He gave up on that. He mm. became much more skeptical about the idea that speech was somewhere in which you can simply find yourself. Because speech is always a partly public process. I would say what psychoanalysis does, and here for me there's a profound link to the politics of Hannah Arendt, it allows you to think differently. Mm. It releases a certain kind of mental process which can work against the grain of what it is you think you're meant to be thinking. Um, so I was just reading Hannah Arendt recently in relationship to Rosa Luxemburg, and she, mm. she was talking about thinking as a form of freedom. Mm. And, of course, Rosa Luxemburg, her most famous statement was, freedom is always the freedom to think otherwise. Uh, it's one of her most fam famous statements. And actually, she's saying that in the context of Lenin and the Russian Revolution. So they mm. were really talking about what she called the night watchman state. And you have to have the freedom to think differently. It was part of her defense of democracy. So I would say that what psychoanalysis does is allow your mind to release itself back into thought. And in, in this context, I've always been very struck by a wonderful essay by um, Christopher Bolas, who's one of the most brilliant English-speaking analysts alive mm. today. And he wrote an essay um, on, it called, I think it's called Incest. Mm. And there's been a lot of controversy about whether the psychoanalyst believes patients who've been abused or not, to which the answer is, yes, of course, they believe them. And then they say, so now what? Let's talk about what it means to you. Let's, let's mm. take it a step further. He said something rather different. He said that when a patient walks into the room who's been abused, his heart sinks. And the reason why his heart sinks is because he knows that is all they're going to talk about. Mm. That is all they are going to be able to talk about over and over and over again. So he started thinking about this and he thought, well, of course. Because if you are a child in a state, to be a child is to be capable of reverie, to allow your mind to roam and to move. If you're abused, it's like a piece of crashing reality comes in mm. and cuts off your capacity for thought, blocks the mind. It is all there is. So he realized, it's, one, it's a really wonderful article, that his, oh no, here we go was actually a moment of what would be called counter-transference. He was actually mm. picking up where the patient was stuck and how they too was, oh no, here we go again. And the idea was that by releasing the experience into the analytic space, you just might be able to give back to that person the capacity of their mind 
to roam. Mm. Okay, so psychoanalysis is for me about a certain kind of freedom of thought. And if you then link that to Arendt and Luxembourg, it then becomes a form of political dissidence, potentially. Mm. I mean, they're, deep, they're, they're deeply connected for me. Or at mm. least I want them to be. I want them to be deeply connected. Indeed. Mm. And uh, the, I, I, think, I think then of uh, your essay on evil, which, uh, in which, in fact, you quote uh, Bolas's uh, essay here. And you, you make this, this uh, two incredible remarks, um, one of which it seems uh, where you quote Osama bin Laden, Tony Blair, some others, and you say, isn't it strange that people who speak about evil they all start to sound exactly the same as each other. That's the, the first remark you make uh, that I was very struck by. The other one in the, in the context of Bolas in particular is evil is a form of transcendence. And I was wondering if you could, you could speak to, to both of those remarks now. Well, there were, I mean, when I first gave the paper on evil um, at a conference, I read out the three remarks about evil spreading across the world and evil mm. having to be combated. And I asked people who, who they thought had said them. And of course, it was a deliberate trick. Nobody could get it. And one was Bin Laden, and one was Blair, and one was Bush, I think. I can't mm, remember. And, oh, no, it was Sharon. Sharon. It was yeah. Sharon. And they do all sound the same. And people who use the word evil mostly don't think it, it's a performative. It does not need to be defined. You say the word, and it has certain effects. And I thought, well, that is really um, very, very strange and disturbing, as if, as if it is... There's this wonderful, sorry, I'm slightly for the associating here. There's this wonderful woman called Mary Weingarten who is, was the head of, um, she was the director for the Occupied Territories of Physicians for Human Rights for a long time, and now she's an activist in London. And she just said, whenever anybody says the word security, everybody in Israel stands up straight and stops thinking. Mm. And I thought that was just such a beautiful expression. So when ev anybody says the word evil, everybody stands up straight and stops thinking. So I felt it was sort of similar. I've forgotten what the second statement was you wanted evil to Evil as a form of transcendence. Oh, yes. Well, this was, again, I was using um, Christopher Burris's article where he suggests that the enactment of certain kinds of violence is, is an attempt to transcend your own death. But one of the ways of thinking about the capacity to kill is that it's a form of projective identification. You get rid of the death in you. You project it on the other, and then you kill it. And somehow then you become an immortal. You become godlike. Mm. Well, of course you do, because you've taken life from somebody else. Mm. And I just thought it was a very suggestive article. Again, and I couldn't go further than this, because it was just suggestive, about what might be engaged psychically in certain forms of absolute power. Mm. That they, they transcend themselves, and they transcend the other clear, but they also, it's something about transcending your own death by enacting it in advance, you know, so you can get, you know, hysteria early for Christmas, you know, just <laughs> get one step ahead of yourself. Mm. Uh, for, for some reason, you've, it makes me think of a, a book that you've written on a lot, but also I think all of the people you've also written on have also written on a lot, which, uh, a lot, which is um, Freud's uh, Moses and Monotheism, or, or Moses and Moses the Man. Um, mm -hmm. Said has written great work mm -hmm. in this regard, um, Lacan again, and, and, and many other people. Um, and, and it seems to me that the, the, the analysis that, that Freud's attempting to broach in that very, very crazy book is something about the, the phantasms of, uh, of, of evil as transcendence, of uh, secondary revisions, of, of effacing your own past in the very uh, uh, attempt to memorialise it, and moreover the generation of a, of a, of a new nation that, that may be even genocidal out of a, a nation of slaves. Can you... I mean, they're, they're okay. obviously very broad aspects, but... Let me just see, has anybody here read Freud's Moses and Monotheism? 
Yes, a few people. Okay, so this is only a few of you. I'm just going to say, this is one. Well, I would have asked it the other way. Is there anyone here who hasn't read Freud's <laughs> Moses and Monotheism? They're just too embarrassed to, 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 to say. To confess you know. that they've read it. Indeed. Yes, I know. You're looking Shameful. Like... Okay. <laughs> no, no, sorry. <laughs> no, he doesn't mean that. Um, Moses and Monotheism is an incredible book by Freud, which he wrote in the passage to exile. So he wrote it between living in Vienna and coming to England in flight from Hitler. So since it's about the passage, right, it then strangely becomes an enactment of what he's writing about, which is Moses leading the people out of slavery. And it's, a very, it's his most tormented, labyrinthine book. He says, this, is on, this, this book has feet of clay. I don't feel the attachment or confidence in it that I feel in any of my other books. He's distraught about it. And he says, what do I think I'm doing? I'm taking from the Jewish people their favorite son. He says Moses was an Egyptian. By the way, he is in a tradition. There is a whole tradition, as I discovered, of people who said that Moses was an Egyptian. But as Edward Said points out brilliantly in his essay on this book, it is so scandalous to say that the creation of a people was dependent on a stranger. So if Moses was an Egyptian, the Jewish people have been founded by somebody who today will be seen as their enemy. And therefore, it's, an, it's a very inspiring notion of what group formation might be, where you don't only include the alien, and all groups, of course, are created in order to exclude the alien. You make them the origin of who you are. And Freud goes even further than this, because he says there were two Moses. That's another scandal. You can't be divinely created twice. You know, it has to happen only once. So you divinely created twice. One was peace-loving, one was violent. It's very interesting. One believed in righteousness, one believed in war. Fascinating, as if Israel is caught in a dilemma between those two founding figures of Moses. But it's, it's as if, I mean, this is the way I see it. At the time of the rise of Zionism, and at the time of the rise of Hitler, Freud is struggling to find a model for group formation that won't be like anything else there's ever been. So he wants a group formation where you are founded twice, where your founder was an alien, where you tried to kill him. It's terribly important. They tried to kill Moses mm. in this account because he was too difficult. Monotheism is way too hard for anybody to cope with in this account. And therefore, violence, which what most groups do, we're innocent, you're guilty, so we can kill you, right? It is one of the founding myths of group formation that we are the good people. We are in possession of some truth or some identity or some love or some passion, which makes us creative, and there's something horrible out there that is threatening us all the time. So he takes the violence, which you could say it is the purpose of group formation, to put somewhere else to justify its own violence, and brings it back to the founding heart of group identity. Well, you just read this and you think, what an amazing thing to have tried to pull off. He more or less fails to do it. It's a completely wacky book. Mm. And, and it's full of comments about him. The most famous one is the creation, the, the, efface, the defacing of a text is like a murder. Mm. It's very, very easy to perpetrate the act, but it's almost impossible to get rid of the traces. Mm. And he's just talking about the revisions of Jewish history in relationship to this Egyptian founder. So I think for many people, and you're mm. absolutely right, Justin, that it's received more commentary than Hamlet, mm. almost, um, mm. this book has now become a bit of an Ur text, because it's about the Ur, it's about the origins, mm. and it just gives us another way of thinking about it. It's, it's quite, it's worth, okay, if you haven't read it, 
It's worth struggling with. If you, by the way, if you can't face it, Edward Said's Freud and the Non-European is a really brilliant shortcut. That's what I always say to my students. Look, if you can't, if you get halfway through and lose, don't worry. Just go and read Edward Said. It's fine. Mm. Okay. So Edward Said, Freud and the Non-European. It's a beautiful mm. essay on Muslim mm. monotheism. Mm. Would I, I know this is a, again a strange free association, but it, it does make me think of a, another form of excess and, and unbearable speech, which is that of, of Sylvia Plath. And Sylvia Plath, you've, you've written one of the, the, the great critical texts on, on her work, The Haunting of Sylvia Plath, in which your, your interpretation of maybe one of the, the most famous poems in English of the Daddy. The, Daddy. Um, could, you, could you speak about what you, you do to the, the rhetoric in Daddy or how you read it, which it's often come under, you know, it's often been uh, uh, accused of a, an identification which it's not allowed to sustain. Sylvia Plath is not Jewish. How can, she's an individual. How, how can her individual trauma be compared to that of uh, uh, the Holocaust? And uh, on the other side, um, uh, feminists both uh, affirming Sylvia Plath and denouncing her as well for exactly the same sorts of reasons. Can you speak about that? Um, well, there's going to be a session on the bell jar later, um, but it's on the bell jar. It's not on Daddy. Daddy is an extraordinary poem. I mean, I, I, I'm, okay, how many people know Sylvia Plath's Daddy? Yes. Okay. Um, she was criticized for um, making her father sound like a Nazi. And she was criticized for saying every woman loves a fascist. So you can see how this poem could cause an awful lot of trouble. Um, and my understanding of it was not that she had no right to identify with the Holocaust, but rather, and this is on the basis of conversations with Saul Friedlander, the amazing Holocaust survivor and writer about Nazism, his big volumes on Nazism have just come out in the last couple of years where he said his task was to go around the world talking about it because the generation who lived it were dying mm. and there would be no one left to talk about it. So I just said to him, well, then, isn't it the responsibility of people who did not experience it to find a way of connecting to it? So I would want to turn the criticism path around and mm. not say she is appropriating the Holocaust for her personal ends, but that she is trying to make a leap of imagination which will connect her to that history which she precisely did not live. Um, so to make a crazy analogy in a way, you know, David Grossman wrote Siander Love because he did not experience the Holocaust. Um, he says this in discussion in many interviews, that it was his task to put himself inside the camp through the voice of Momique, under, trying to understand the grandfather Wasserman and what he lived in the camps. Now, obviously, that's very different. Plath was not Jewish. Her father was suspected of being a German mm. sympathizer, and he died when she was eight, so then there's every opportunity to inflate that into a mega fantasy, which you get in the poem, The Colossus, of course. Um, mm. So I, I wanted to say she's making a link. She's not appropriating. It is appropriating her, and I would still want to make that mm. argument, which is to turn the question around and say, what are the available forms of identification for people who precisely were not there? How do you keep it alive, if not through such an act of identification? In relationship to the boot in the face, um, if you look at it syntactically, and this is where literary criticism comes into its own, I think, <laughs> if you look at it syntactically, 
it's not clear who's putting the boot in whose face. I say it's extremely ambiguous. And at moments, it's not as if everyone loves a fascist. I, I want to be beaten up by a fascist, which is problematic for feminism. It might be everyone loves a fascist because every woman has a certain violence in her, which she's not allowed to have, but which she might want to identify with. Marilyn Monroe, I am violent. Everybody has violence in them in her journals. Mm. Right? For me, this is a psychoanalytic point, that if you think you are innocent, you will be guilty of what Christopher Boas calls violent innocence, i.e. you will put your violence into somebody else and think you have a right to kill them. So it is, you know, I see this, uh, you know, I see this as Plath as taking huge risks in her writing. Mm. Um, and the same thing happens in The Rabbit Catcher, mm. you know, which mm. Ted Hughes stupidly, forgive me, took out of Ariel because thereby incriminating himself, mm. because it's as if he thinks the rabbit catcher is me, so we'll take that one out, along with the courage of shutting up, which clearly was him. Okay, so we'll take all these ones out that make me look terrible, therefore, therefore making himself look absolutely terrible. Mm. Um, okay, so he took out rabbit catcher, and there, you know, I read this poem, and I thought, you know, the trap, the trap is full of hair, and it's soft, and it's not, and I suddenly realized the trap wasn't just a male phallic image. It was also to do with female sexuality. So how you distribute the fear, how you distribute what it is she's protesting against from her own brilliant and inspired involvement in the complexities of what it is to have the body of a woman, it's impossible to do it. You can't do it. Well, that brought the house down. So I got, you know, I mean, you know, when you write on Plath, you get the Owen Hughes, you know, how dare you? Mm. And after she's softened you up with legal threats and everything else, then you get the correspondence, not anymore, so you get the correspondence with Ted Hughes, and he said in a letter to me, was I aware that in certain countries to speculate on a mother's sexual identity was grounds for homicide? So my friend said to me, if any strange plane tickets come through the post <laughs> to some wonderful destination, don't go, okay? Um, and I wrote back to him and I said, look, I'm saying nothing about her sexual life, about which I know nothing. I'm saying something about what poetic writing can allow you to do against the civilized norms of what we're expected to be thinking. The author of Crow and everything might like this, but oh no, oh no, he hated it. And then there were all threats and so on for the legal threats. But for me, what's extraordinary about Plath is that she takes those risks. Mm. And um, for me, that is a psychoanalytic moment. There is no thought we are not capable of having, mm. and it's better to have them than not. Otherwise, you will divide the world into good and evil. Mm. Um, I suppose I feel that quite strongly. I suppose. Well, uh, on that note, we, we might take the risk of throwing it open to questions from the audience, Jacqueline. Like, we have about 10, 10 minutes for questions. I'm sure you all have something to, to say. So, um, Anthony. Uh, just over here, please. Yeah. Sorry, no, over here first, and then, and then, then the lady, the lady at the front. Uh, Jacqueline, um, I'm interested in your thoughts about um, Jacques Lacan when you came to Lacan's work first, and your uh, transition, uh, perhaps the transition over the decades, in terms of what did you find valuable at the start, in the middle, and at the end? Well, not I'm really at the end, the end. am I? <laughs> not really at the end. Still in transition. Um... Well, I've, uh, I'm not sure I can do it quite in the sequence that you've suggested, but what attracted me to Lacan was that I thought he was a scandalous thinker. 
Um, and we have to remember that, you know, he wasn't Freud, Viennese patriarch, living in an establishment world, or even, that, even that's controversial because Vienna was hardly an establishment city after all, as Skolsky has demonstrated. But he wrote for Minotaur. He wrote for the Surrealists. Mm. He really wanted to bring out the dissolute in psychoanalysis, not the disseminated a la Jacques Derrida, but the dissolute in psychoanalysis. And I found that very, very exhilarating. And I also found his outrageous statements about women, like, you know, there is no sexual relation and the woman does not exist. I, all found, I found all that incredibly encouraging and liberating because it's as if he was taking a certain phantasmagoria of what women are meant to be and just putting a, a red mark through it and saying, think again. Um, and the absolutely arbitrary nature of sexual difference. I found, I found all that very challenging and I just wanted to, translating it was a way of trying to understand it. Um, I've worked much less with Lacan in the last few years, or probably the last decade. I've gone much more back into Freud. Um, and I, I, I can't really give a simple answer to that. I mean, I still do Lacan's ethics seminar, which I didn't know when I was much younger, I still think is his most brilliant seminar on what Lacan has to say about ethical life and the difficulty of ethical life through his reading of Antigone and so on. But I have been working much, much more with Freud in the last few yeah. years and people like Christopher Bolas. I mean, I just, I just uh, think there's something in Freud all the time which challenges me and excites me still. Um, and so I don't feel like I, that's not a good answer. I'm really sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so here, please. Thank you. One of the basic fundamentals of psychoanalysis is the search for truth. Um, and what I was struck by was when you said your political um, thoughts and opinions were influenced by your trip to Ramallah and um, those incidents, what I was quite struck by, that that sounded like a one-sided um, search for the truth. And I'm wondering, I haven't read your works, whether you have also gone and looked at the other side in a real, genuine search for truth? Um, I would say that the fundamental um, axiom of psychoanalysis is to know thyself. And as a Jewish woman who is called on by the Israeli state to identify with its policies and who is accused of self-hatred if she criticizes it, um, I feel my obligation is to understand the identification I'm being called for and called to. So my work has been to understand the power of Zionism and what I think it carries and what I think it's asking of me. Have I also tried to understand the Palestinian narrative and history? Well, of course. Um, on the course I teach at Queen Mary, which is called Palestine, Israel, Israel, Palestine, and we spend politics and the literary imagination, and we spend the first moments in the seminar discussing why it's Palestine, Israel, Israel, Palestine, because it is contentious which one came first, right? And you need to, the students need to know it's contentious. We start with um, the Israeli poet, Yehuda Amichai, and the Palestinian poet, Mahmoud Darwish. And it is absolutely central to the course that we enter into both stories and we try and understand them on both sides. Um, and the other rule of the course is that anything can be said in the course. I mean, I have, I teach in the Mile End Road, 
And so I have, you know, British Muslim students. There are students from Somalia. There are students from Iraq. I had an Iraqi Mizrahim on the course a few years ago. I've had Palestinians on the course. I mean, the atmosphere in the room is electric. Um, and many of the young women who are there, who are British Muslims, say, I'm on this course because we are pro-Palestinian in my family and I want to understand what it is that we're pro and I want to understand the other side. So if you're asking, I'm not balanced, by the way, and I'm not impartial, because I think to be balanced in an unbalanced world is crazy, right? <laughs> so if you're asking me for impartiality and balance, you won't get it from me. But if you're asking me for an attempt to understand what both sides in this conflict are mm. saying and what their investments are, yes, of course. Question here, please. You talk a lot about what's happening behind performance. And I guess at a political level and a state level, is that kind of pulling apart of the thread something that can happen during the process, or does it need to happen in a separate critical space? Well, that's a million, that's such a good question. I mean, you, you're in the middle of an election, right? Um, and of course, I, I was at the feminist discussion yesterday where they had to stop themselves from talking about Julia Gillard for the whole time. Mm -hmm. But, um, and I would have loved it if they had actually. <laughs> but it's, it's very clear that this has been a moment, or I say clear, I'm not as confident as that, you tell me if this is right, where something very ugly has surfaced at the heart of politics. And somebody, a woman, has tried to articulate and address it. And what they were saying on the platform, it was Monica Ducks and Anna Goldsworthy and people, what they were saying was that this has raised the level of consciousness and produced a collective discourse about misogyny. But it's also, of course, produced a very ugly backlash. And she's been sacrificed. I mean, whatever you think about her carbon tax, tax policy and all of that, she was clearly sacrificed. So I think the answer is yes and no. I think you can do it at the time, but you might pay a very high price for it. But it's ongoing. Ça ne cesse pas de s'écrire. Forgive me, that's Lacan's account of the symptom. Ça ne cesse pas de s'écrire. It never ceases to be written. Which say that these little moments of opening and breakage and symptomatic collapse are there for the whole time, all the time. And one of the tasks of a certain kind of political analysis, I think, is to go for them and expose them every time they appear. And I like to think that changes the terms of the discourse. But it's very tricky what you've said because it will initiate a kind of bring the barriers back down and very ugly things then can happen. But yeah, no, it's a great question. Thank mm -hmm. you. Thanks. Um, fantastic talk. Look, um, Jack, you know, I want to defend evil. I'm quite a big fan of it. And I think that this... Um, um, your essay is about politicians using the idea of evil and Bin Laden and Sharon, which is, which is, I think, you're absolutely spot on. But now I'm thinking about writers and creative writers and poets using evil, and there I think maybe evil is actually, in a Dorna sense, is a negative, generative idea. That I'm thinking about flowers of evil, I'm thinking about even illusions of evil, precisely as you said in Plath's poem. And I wonder if there it's actually something that can make us think um, at an aesthetic level, not at a political level. Well, it's interesting. I was having a conversation. I mean, I'm here, as some of you will know, as part of the LRB, London Review of Books Contingent, and one of the other participants in that is Andrew O'Hagan. And he was talking about the fact that he was having a conversation with an author who I won't name because 
he might not want me to be sharing this quite so publicly, um, about the idea of evil thoughts. And he was saying, you know, like you might be standing at the head of a bus stop and you might suddenly think, what would happen if I pushed that old man under the bus? And he said this to a very, very distinguished woman writer. And she said, I have those thoughts all the time. He said, great, will you write about it? The piece never came in. He's tried to commission it or ask for it many, many times. Because evil thoughts are something we all have, and none of us can bear to admit that we have them, except perhaps to our analysts, right? I mean, that's, you know, it's one of the places where you can do that, or to our nearest and dearest, depending on the relationship. So I couldn't agree with you more that evil is something you can perform in fiction. And in fact, one of the things I was interested in that essay was Kutzea's, um essay mm. on evil mm. with Elizabeth Costello. And I was at a conference in, in Amsterdam called Evil. And Kutzea was there. And he read out that essay before it had become part of the Elizabeth Costello book. And in it, some of you may remember, he, um, uh, it's, it's in the first-person voice of a woman who goes to a conference on evil where she's going to criticize a book about the last days mm. of Hitler's would-be assassins mm. and to say this book has gone too far only to discover the author of the book is in the audience. Okay. And while she's discussing evil, she remembers being violated as a young girl. Now, you have to imagine one thing, reading that. Then you have to imagine Kutzea standing there, a man, reading the voice of a woman, describing herself being violated as a young girl. Now, in disgrace, he is adamant that the man cannot go there, right? So when Lucy is raped, she never talks to him, and he has to understand he cannot go there. I was fascinated that he broke his rule. And he actually wrote it from the point of a woman and then performed it from the point of a woman. I felt he'd gone too far because he's so clever. That's what the whole article is about, whether you go too far. So it became a kind of staging of how far literature can go down the path of evil. And certainly, I agree with you, the point about literature is that it takes you down pathways of the mind that are not acceptable anywhere else. And in that context, it's a form of freedom. And I agree. And I always say to my students, you know, where are the places in the culture, in a, if you're a man, that you want to say, actually, I'm a woman, and vice versa, that you can say that without being carted off. Well, of course, now Germany has a third sex on their passports. Things are changing. But one is psychoanalysis, the other one is literature. So, yes, I agree with you. Mm. Well, we have time maybe for one more brief question. Well, you've all been effectively silenced over the last <laughs> hour. Again, thank you. Um, I'd like to uh, just uh, remind you that uh, Jacqueline has to be frog-marched down to the bookstore immediately following this and forced to sign books until she can sign no more. But that requires you to do the right thing and, and buy those books, buy our book, buy all of her books, um, and that's the least you can do. Can you please um, uh, follow her down? So, please. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more, go to lrb.co.uk.